Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the third episode of Chatter in the Skull. And today, I'm going to offer you the red pill. That is, the red pill of socialism. Because we don't want no beta blue-pilled capitalist cucks around these parts. Sorry, that was exceedingly difficult to say with a straight face. So yes, in case it wasn't obvious, the major topic for today's show is going to be the red pill, the manosphere, and relationships in general, and how politics have bled into relationships, and how relationships are being formed. Should be a pretty interesting show. Also got a couple updates on the various current events that are happening throughout the world. We're going to be going over the anarchy in the UK, as well as some updates on the Russian-Ukraine war. But before we get into the main track of today's episode, I would like to talk a little bit about last week's episode, as there was definitely some fallout from it. However, there was definitely much more in terms of support. I learned that I had a great many non-binary and transgender listeners to the show, which is great. That's fantastic. Thank you all for joining me. However, with that support came a tiny, tiny faction of hatred. And not just regular type of hatred, but vehement, I want to kill you and hope that you die hatred. It made me realize just how wrapped up these people are in the cult of anti-trans rhetoric to the point where they are just going on people who are pro-trans YouTube channels and screaming to the hills that they want them to die. And personally, I find these kind of hate comments pretty funny. I've always found them funny. I've always kind of gotten a little kick out of them. So I personally don't mind them. In fact, keep them coming because I've got sort of this weird you know, 12 angry men fetish where I like to be the only person who has one position and everybody else has a position against me. And then I kind of vehemently argue for my position to the point where people slowly come over to my side. I love that kind of shit. And it made me realize just how psychopathic these people who are anti-trans are so much that they want you dead just for being pro-trans rights. So I can't imagine what they would do to someone who's actually trans and the type of abuse and hatred that they would hurl at them. It makes you realize that there is no way that someone would willingly subject themselves to this hate and abuse unless they actually were trans and this was a move they were making to greater achieve their own self-actualization and mental health. But beyond that, there was an important goal for that last episode. I definitely came out as more combative than I probably will be moving into the future. But the reason for that is because I wanted to set a very healthy boundary for the show. And talking about relationships, we are going to be mentioning healthy boundaries quite a bit. So I wanted to set the boundaries of no transphobes, no people who hate trans rights and don't think that they exist. You will not find welcome here. You will not find respect here. I did definitely want to take that combative tone in these first couple episodes on that issue because it is a extremely important to me. I believe that the rhetoric around trans people has gone to a very dangerous state and that if I didn't say anything and set out my position, I could be potentially contributing to this hate campaign. And the thing is that trans people are so easy to other and they're so easy to scapegoat. And that's what makes this situation so scary. Because when you think about it, trans people, they make up a pretty small percentage of the population. Between 0.5 and 3% of the population. Whereas homosexual people generally end up making between 5 and 9, depending on what factors you're using and how you're measuring this. 
because trans people make up such a small percentage of the population, not very many people know trans people personally in their lives, which makes them, again, very easy to other. And in comparison to something like being gay, it's a lot harder for a cisgendered person to put themselves in the frame of reference for what it might be like to live as a trans person. It actually requires sort of a genuine effort and genuine empathy. And while I think everybody is capable of being empathetic in that way, not everybody is willing. And with that, that's my big statement on the last episode. Like I said, really wanted to come out and draw a clear line there about where my position is. So we covered the first three conservative arguments, and these first three are arguments which I personally don't think are very good or effective. However, the next three we're going to be talking about, we'll, we'll only cover two today, but the last one in the fourth episode. But the next three we're going to talk, talk about are arguments which I think are more powerful and more convincing. So there might actually be some common ground coming up. And honestly, on a personal level, I've actually gotten along surprisingly well with people on the right who are in that sort of right libertarian quadrant of the political compass. Because while I personally fall very firmly into the left libertarian quadrant, and you guys know the political, the very famous political compass I'm talking about, right? So left, right, authoritarian, left, right, libertarian. I get along with these people in that right libertarian quadrant very well, because at least we have common ground on who deserves rights and dignity. So while we may not have very much in terms of agreement on economic policies, at least we can come together on that sort of core issue and be like, okay, we can respect each other on this. People in that top right authoritarian quadrant, though, I get along with almost never because they are usually social conservatives and I find very little common ground with social conservatives. We have almost no common ground. And that's part of the reason why I wanted to come out and put my position out there very clearly. So those people who I probably won't be able to reach anyway can find their own path in life. All right, everybody, it's time to talk about that red pill, the manosphere and relationships in general. And if you're not sure what the red pill is, I'll, I'll do my best to actually steel man the argument to try and explain it in the terms that they would explain it. So the red pill is kind of like a philosophy in regards to relationships and an approach to women in general, whereby the man sort of self-actualizes his most masculine identity. He embraces the masculine aspects of himself. He embraces the masculine aspects that society generally celebrates as sort of masculine traits, and he eschews the feminine traits. And through this, he will become sort of a more well-rounded and confident person, and through that, be able to essentially acquire female attention and be able to get laid, basically. And this philosophy has really kind of taken off in the last five years or so, and it's really permeated a lot of circles, and circles which are by and large political. And the main issue is, through this philosophy, a lot of people find themselves on the doorstep of right-wing politics. And unfortunately, the left, I think, has done a very poor job in offering an alternative to the red pill and not be able to articulate ways in which we could build better relationships with each other. And maybe not so much today, but I will do a little bit today and moving forward, especially into the fourth episode, I'm going to give you some ways for which outside of the whole red pill manosphere that you can achieve self-improvement and better yourselves and achieve 
those same things, but not buy into the right-wing political ideology, which comes along behind it. So I've been struggling exactly how to frame this. So I'm going to give you the next two conservative arguments in relatively quick succession here. But to frame the red pill discourse, I want to talk about the fourth conservative argument that they deploy. And it's almost not so much an argument as a tactic. And what I call this is generic conservative argument number four, the facts bait and switch. So what exactly is the facts bait and switch? Well, let's get into it. So one thing conservatives like to always say is, you know, they got the facts, they figure out the facts, the facts, the facts, the facts don't care about your feelings. However, what they don't really do is kind of take the facts and follow them to their logical conclusion. So they will announce that the facts exist and sort of tell you the facts. And then as the diatribe is going, they're going to start to switch out those facts with more and more crazy rhetoric. And the conservative commentators, especially the ones who are usually pretty big, like Ben Shapiro and Jordan Peterson, they are absolute masters at the facts bait and switch to the point where you don't understand where the facts begin and the rhetoric and political nonsense ends. They have gotten so skilled at this maneuver that they are able to flow from facts to nonsense almost seamlessly. Let's talk about something that's pertinent to our topic today. And if you've been around the internet for the past couple of years, you've probably seen this graph here. This is a graph showing the virginity rates of men from 1989 going up to 2018. So this is a couple of years old now, but as you can see, there's been a huge uptick in the amount of men who are remaining virgins for a longer period of time. And this graph is one that is frequently used for the facts bait and switch, because this is a fact that men, young men are having less sex than they did in previous times. But obviously, here comes the switch as to why men are having less sex. The conservative and maybe red pill type might say it's because women are becoming more choosy. They're moving up and trying to choose the higher status men. Another big one is that Tinder has basically moved young men out of the market and made it impossible to compete in the sexual marketplace. Man, that's one of the things that always kind of bothered me was just taking this sort of commodification of relationships and using business terminology or using sort of the market and capitalist terms and imprinting those onto relationships. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty dehumanizing. I, I don't think that there's any question about that. So you see what I'm saying here, right? They'll take something like this, like young men are having less sex, and then they will use that to frame their political argument. They will basically do the whole correlation equals causation. They'll say something's happening and then reverse engineer back the ways to fit into their political ideology. But that's not the most powerful facts bait and switch that the red pill community uses. The most powerful facts bait and switch comes in the form of our next conservative argument, the fifth conservative argument. And the fifth conservative argument is just responsibility, bro. Just responsibility, bro, is the kind of argument where just pull yourself up by your bootstraps type of thing and everything will be okay. Society isn't the problem. The problem is that you're just not doing enough on an individual level to get what you want out of society. 
And this is something you hear a lot, particularly when it comes to social programs that people shouldn't have handouts basically because they need to just responsibility bro their way out of the mess that they're in in any case the subtext here being is that society doesn't need to change it's just you that needs to change so you might be asking kind of how does this relate back to the facts bait and switch there are personal problems which you can legitimately responsibility bro your way out of Improving yourself is one of the most powerful things we can do as human beings. And there's no question that through the process of self-improvement, you will become more confident, you will become happier. And ultimately, people will notice that and they'll be attracted and interested in it. Here's the thing, though. You cannot, you cannot responsibility bro your way out of systemic and societal issues which throughout my lifetime have only gotten worse and worse, not better, and it doesn't seem like they're gonna get better anytime soon. So they use this kind of fundamental fact about human nature that humans have the capacity for self-improvement and then turn it against us almost to say that it's not because of society that you're not improving, it's because of yourself. When we very much so have a society which does not encourage self-improvement. And then the right will sometimes go even deeper and say the fact that you can approve yourself in any way, shape, or form basically is a reflection that society is working and you should shut up about it. This is an argument that Benny Boy likes to make. He'll some say something like, well, if you can improve yourself in society, that means the laugh's entire philosophy is garbage. So we definitely need to stop letting the right get away with this argument because it is kind of depressing our own self-improvement. Maybe some people actually internalize this argument, but like I said before, we can't let them get away with this nonsense because self-improvement is a fundamental human attribute that can be achieved in any society. In fact, you could argue that the harsher society is, the more self-improvement people have with the whole trials and tribulations that they have to endure. But I think his argument that our society benefits self-improvement is kind of bunked to begin with because we have almost no time in our daily lives to actually focus on that kind of stuff. Usually, if you're working, you're working at least 40 hours a week, sometimes more. If you've got family, friends, whatever, you don't have the time to actually really focus on this in a meaningful and beneficial way. So my message to the left out there is don't ever, ever, ever run away from improving yourself, whether that's physically, mentally, or preferably both. Because while yes, you are right, we cannot fight societal issues with individual self-improvement, we can put ourselves in a better position to fight those societal issues for sure. And not only that, we can make ourselves more confident and comfortable people in the process. The thing is though, is that self-improvement is extremely difficult. It takes a lot of work and it certainly doesn't happen overnight. And one of the things I've found is that people get inspired to improve themselves in various different ways. Sometimes it's through religious means, sometimes it's through a personal friend, sometimes it's through a teacher or mentor, sometimes it's through just a movie that they saw type of thing. It could be any number of things which inspire you to self-improvement. So once you get inspired into that mode of self-improvement, you sort of realize that, hey, there's really something to this. I'm starting to feel a lot better. I'm starting to look better. Things are going great. 
And then because of that, you start to really look at that source that inspired you to self-improvement as something maybe more than it really is. Because whatever this is inspired such a great change in your life, you become vulnerable to almost anything that they will say after the fact. So let's say a guy like Jordan Peterson inspired you to better yourself, to clean your room, get your act into gear, and you feel a lot better because of this. Honestly, I think that's great. What I think is much less great is when you become vulnerable to his ideology because he led you down the road of self-improvement. And this can happen with virtually anybody or anything. And it's one of the things that definitely happens with the red pill and the manosphere. I see men go down this road and temporarily they feel great. They feel like they're awesome. They're confident. Maybe they're out there, the meeting girls type of thing. You know, everything's going good. But because these kind of manosphere types inspired them to that self-improvement, they then internalize the toxic ideology that comes with it. And that part, let me tell you guys, will fuck up your life forever. And the reason for that is, is that you'll start to internalize a lot of very toxic ideas about women. That's all women are out to get you. All women are bad. All women just want to basically come and rob you of your resources. And that's just such an awful attitude to have towards people that, like I said, it's really going to mess you up. And these guys have really been able to get their foot in the door because there is an identity crisis amongst young men. People will reframe this as, particularly on the right in the manosphere, will reframe this as there's a crisis of masculinity. And <laughs> not the way I see it at all. I think there's a crisis really amongst everybody, young men included, but that's for a larger discussion. But certainly as society is advancing forward, the roles of men and the expectations around men are changing. And change is difficult for everybody. And this change has definitely left a void in a lot of people who really at the core of their being identify themselves as a man and think that their masculine identity is what is their core defining feature. And unfortunately, I do think the left has done a poor job in filling that void of identity and letting the right come in and fill it for us. So before I get into my solutions, let me try and explain this graph with a different interpretation, one which I think is much more in tune with what's going on in reality, which is that there used to be a time in which a man could come right out of high school, find a pretty secure job, and build a decent, stable life for themselves. They used to be able to do various manufacturing or resource extraction jobs or various other types of industrial work. And I think it's definitely fair to say that women are attracted to men who are secure, who are secure economically, secure personably, secure emotionally. However, it was still okay because you could still at least go to university and still end up with a somewhat decent job. But now, especially after the 2008 recession, that has changed dramatically. The young men, even out of university, to create stable lives for themselves, I feel like I was very lucky in the sense that directly out of university, I was able to create a good and stable life for myself. Unfortunately, I am one of the few ones, I think, and most people that I talk to, especially if they don't live in an area that has a low cost of housing, like here in Alberta, they're really struggling to get themselves off the ground. So I think focusing your ire on women in general is incredibly toxic and definitely not the way you should go about 
the changing circumstances of reality, we need to be focusing our effort on changing the systems themselves. So before we go on, I want to talk about two major ideas that the red pill likes to put forward and talk about how there is definitely some kernels of truth in them. However, we'll talk about that bait and switch, how if just because there's some kernels of truth here, you don't need to buy into kind of the ridiculous ideology that comes after the fact. So this is one topic and theory they like to bandy about a lot, which is the concept of hypergamy. If you're unfamiliar, the concept of hypergamy is that people and for the Red Bull type, specifically women, they're always going after people who are above them, essentially, whether socially, economically, what have you. And if a point comes in which your partner feels that you are not the best partner that they can achieve, then essentially they will leave you and try and find a better one. So when you really factor this down, essentially to the base level of what it's saying, it says that people are going to try and get the best deal out of their relationships, that they're going to try and get the best partner that they possibly can. And you know, I think that this is pretty much true of everything. People are going to try and get the best partners that they can. They're going to try and get the best jobs that they can. They're going to try and get the best houses that they can. They're always going to try and maximize the pleasure in their own world. I do think that there is something to this concept that if you stop taking care of yourself, and this is definitely genderless advice, right? It doesn't matter. You should be taking care of yourself. And that goes outside the realm of physicality, of course, to more intellectual and spiritual realms. But I think that there is definitely something to this idea that if you stop growing, if you stop getting better, then you could put your relationship in danger. But here's the thing, taking care of yourself is just generic good advice. So they're taking this generic good advice and tying it into the concept of relationships. But there's another kind of thing that really I think is not fair in terms of how this issue is talked about. This issue, especially in kind of the, the manosphere realm, is always talked about how it's only a female thing, that only females are hypergamous and men are not. And to me, that is such nonsense. Men are just hypergamous in different ways, in the sense that we look for different attributes when trying to find the quote-unquote best partner than women do. And they talk a lot about the unfairness of divorce courts, which... I think if you're, you're being real and you're being intellectually honest, there is definitely a lot of reform that can happen in divorce courts. I think that they are certainly skewed against men. But the reason isn't because there's this wokeness kind of delving into the legal system. If anything, I would argue that it is the patriarchy that continues to enforce these type of laws. And I know a lot of people don't like to hear that word or don't like to talk about this. And a lot of people especially don't like to contend with the idea that the patriarchy is damaging towards men. So let me kind of break down what I mean here. These laws that favor women by and large are predicated on this idea that men are inferior child rearers and inferior at taking care of children. And this cultural attitude absolutely needs to die. This might be the most controversial thing I say in this episode in particular. But I don't think that there is anything that holds men back from being equal partners in relationships than this notion that they are inferior in taking care of children. I think it's important that we move towards a society that has less gender roles and less gender-specific areas that people need to fit into. And one of the best ways we can do this, I think, is getting rid of this patriarchal cultural notion.
And another thing that they don't tell you, or at least that they kind of ignore, is that these laws in place now are basically in place to prevent the male version of hypergamy, which is essentially dumping your wife for someone who's younger and prettier. Don't get me wrong here. Obviously, both are bad. Obviously, it's bad to leave your wife for a younger woman, just as it's bad to leave your husband for a richer man. That is, of course, bearing that there's no physical or emotional abuse going on. And this right here, the big lie that they will tell you with the hypergamy message, which is essentially that if you're if you're in the bottom 80% of men, then you're done, you're toasted. Basically, you may as well give up, put a bullet in your brain, it's over. I just don't see any evidence of this in my personal life. I see men of all shapes and sizes dating women of all shapes and sizes. And the thing is, if you're just sitting around complaining about this shit, you're not going to find any success in relationships anyway. The only thing you can do is to improve yourself. And here's the thing about this chart about hypergamy, that if it were the case and these guys actually cared about young men, then they would be advocating for socialism every single day. Because one of the main tenements of socialism, obviously, is to flatten any hierarchical systems. And a lot of people think that socialists want to do it in kind of like smashing it down. We smash down the bottom and then everybody's, you know, flat at the bottom. That is not the way I see it at all. I see it as a process of bringing up the bottom to the top, not the other way around. So essentially by changing the system, we could raise these bottom 80% of men up by eliminating things which drag them down, which is, for example, not being able to compete economically or not being able to start stable and secure lives. So the big takeaway here is just take care of yourself emotionally, physically, spiritually, and you'll A, feel much better and have more stable relationships in the long run. And like I said before, but I do really want to reiterate this. This is just kind of generic good advice, right? They sell you generic good advice, then they bring in the political ideology after the fact. So this generic good advice applies to you no matter what type of relationship status you're in, no matter what your gender is, no matter what your class, your race, what have you, it applies to everybody. Now, let's get into the next topic. Now, let's go into the next subject they like to talk about. And that is the concept of simps. I've got my nice simp card here. I just think that the Anne Cap face is hilarious. In any case, I do want to spend some time talking about simping. And, and this is my opportunity to introduce to you guys a concept which I have been kind of waiting to introduce to you on the show. I'm going to introduce to you guys what I call the cringe left. So the cringe left is my term for what a lot of people call the woke left or SJWs. So some people were upset in the last episode that I didn't really talk about the woke left. And that was very intentional for that type of episode where I wanted to make my position very clear. And I'm going to make my position very clear here, which is that when it comes to the woke left, the cringe left, as I like to call them, my heart is in the same place as them. And this is one of the reasons why I never was like, oh, you know, I got to leave the left. The left is terrible. Blah, 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 blah. Look at all these wokeness, et cetera, et cetera. Because yeah, my heart was with the struggle and with the fight. My main issue is that I thought that their tactics were in a lot of times really junk. I don't really believe in canceling people or taking away their platform unless they've done something really horrifically egregious. And if they're a powerful person, one thing I really 
don't agree with is trying to cancel or censor or take away the power of everyday people. If you're a celebrity that has a shit ton of money, shit ton of followers, eh, you're going to be fine. But if you're a regular person, this kind of act of cancellation really creates a right-wing political radical rather than someone who actually agrees with our ideas. So yeah, to these guys, I love you. I love where your heart's at. But let's try and think about ways that we can bring our message out to the people without making them cringe so hard. One thing that I've learned in my lifetime, which I unfortunately wish wasn't true, but it just is the case, is that the way you say something matters just as much and sometimes more as what you're saying. Because I think the cringe left has a real issue with taking things that are true and that are right and are major issues in society and then framing them in a way that will turn everybody off of contending with them. One metaphor I like to use is that the right wing, it's like a beautiful present, a beautiful little box tied up with a bow, looks lovely, but on the inside is nothing but shit. And when the right give people this box, they're like, wow, you know, what a nice box. Oh, it's so beautiful. Oh, it's so lovely. Just going to hold on to it. But the fact of the matter is you can only hold on to that box so long before you start to smell the bullshit. The left, on the other hand, we have like a nugget of gold and then we take it and we wrap it in sandpaper. And then we're like, hey, take this nugget of gold. And people are like, nah, nah, that looks, that's, that's just sandpaper. <laughs> like what? No, it's gold. Why won't you believe me? Why won't you take it? Take it. And you know, you're kind of rubbery <laughs> the gold with sandpaper in someone's face type of thing. Our ideas, our concepts, our political values are infinitely better than the rights. And we kind of take this and just assume that everybody else thinks and feels that way, where all we need to do is just show them that we have the nugget of gold. So how does this relate back to the topic of simping? Well, let's go over essentially what simping is. So for those of you guys who are unfamiliar with the concept, simping is essentially basically giving yourself excessively to another person or another, and sometimes it can be like an ideology in the case of our simping and cap person, but essentially just giving all of your, all of your energy, all of your resources, all of your time to just one person or one thing or idea. And this can definitely be dangerous because people with nefarious intent can spot simps like that and they will zero in on you and basically try and extract as much value as they possibly can from you. And unfortunately, I think a lot of left-wing guys fall into a pattern because they're afraid of essentially being seen as a toxic male. They're afraid of being seen as a predator or someone who's a jerk or, you know, one of those guys that just tramples all over women's rights. And to those people, I just say, stop. You're not doing the right thing. The main thing why women don't respond to simping is because it's obvious what you're doing. That is, you're trying to trade resources for sex and it's cringe. And especially women can see that. Unless you're planning to tell the girl to get into the kitchen or talk about what a powerful alpha male you are, you probably shouldn't really be worried about coming off as a toxic male. Because at the end of the day, women still want their guy to be a dude. That is, if they're a heterosexual woman, they just don't want them to abuse or treat them poorly. So if you're acting kind of weak or acting like you're just giving resources, 
they will respond to that negatively because essentially what it signals is insecurity, that you're insecure with yourself, that you're insecure with what you have to offer, that you can only offer essentially your resources and nothing else. But the lie that they sell you here is this idea of just kind of doing nice things for women and being a nice person in general is somehow simping. That's just being a human being. As far as I'm concerned, simping is only really a negative thing when it's one-sided. And once again, this is genderless advice. If you're a woman and you're giving everything you have to your man and he's not giving you anything return, that's toxic. You should definitely change that situation. And if you were a man giving everything to a woman and she wasn't giving you anything in return, that is also toxic and you should get out of that situation. So try not to be too worried about being nice to women and being called a simp. Just stop worrying about being too toxic or being too nice and just be a human being, man. Just be a human being. So what's the ultimate takeaway here? Well, the ultimate takeaway is that if you are just giving everything you have in the pursuit of getting a relationship with somebody, it's not gonna work. You need to be a fully independent and secure person before you can have a healthy relationship. Because this will allow you to know your likes, your dislikes, who you are, what is important to you, and what you're willing to tolerate out of another person and what you're not. This will help you create healthy boundaries because there's absolutely nothing wrong with healthy boundaries. It's when you have unhealthy boundaries where things start to become an issue. But by setting those boundaries, you will find that you yourself will become more defined and people will have less ability to take advantage of you. So before I continue, there's something I want people to understand, which is that yes, there are people on the left who are too sensitive about issues of race and gender. And of course, that doesn't mean that those issues aren't extremely important and should be alleviated. I would say, maybe think of some different language and verbiage that you can kind of use to maneuver people to your position. But the one thing you gotta know is that these sort of fringe leftists make up a tiny percentage of people who are actually on the left. Basically, the one thing I like to tell people who are into Benny Boy and Crowder and all those guys is that what these people do is basically an elaborate form of shadow boxing, where they create this archetype of a leftist and then spend their entire show basically fighting against this thing that doesn't exist. So yeah, don't be fooled by these guys and make sure you're pushing back when you hear stuff like that. But let's talk about why the right has trouble getting laid because this is something that the manosphere doesn't tell you about and won't talk about because if they did, they'd probably lose a lot of followers. One of these things these guys like to say is that simping is gonna make a woman drier than the Sahara Desert, which real talk, there's truth into that. But there is something that will make a woman even drier than that. And that is homophobia and transphobia. Don't believe me? When was the last time any of these alpha types came to you and said, you know what you should lead off with? You should lead off with your political beliefs. Not only is that going to kill any chances that she's probably going to be intimate with you, she's also probably going to run far and fast. There's a reason why these guys don't tell you to lead with your political beliefs. If anything, they tell you to hide them as long as you possibly can. This, of course, begs the question, why do women hate homophobia and hate transphobia? 
Well, the answer is simple, because it signals insecurity. And for the overwhelming majority of women, insecurity is a huge turnoff. So the reason why homophobia and transphobia shows insecurity is because it shows that basically the only identifying factor you have is either your gender or your sexuality. And that these are basically so ingrained within you that the idea that they could be any different from what you are or that you could change them basically shatters your underlying ego philosophy. And not only that, it shows that you're insecure and in just letting people go about and live their lives. And this is why the anti-trans grift is so profitable because there is a ton of money to be made these days in validating the insecurities of people. So to end this off, I'm going to tell you two stories. And these are stories that may be based on people that I personally know. One story is a guy who went down the red pill path for self-improvement and what happened to him. And the other is a story about a guy who just improved himself and didn't go red pill and what happened. So let me tell the first story. This is a story about a man, let's call him Jim. And Jim was a, you know, small kind of scrawny man. Didn't really have a lot of success with the women out there. Until one day he found the red pill and he started working out and started bulking up. He started looking better. He started feeling better and he even started acting more confidently. He landed himself a girl that he did not meet through a dating app. And I would say that virtually all relationships that I know in my life are people who have not met in dating apps, at least all the long-term successful and stable ones. So anyway, he meets this girl, things are going well, there's no issues. And that is until that red pill ideology kind of starts to worm its way into his brain. And he starts to become more and more noticeably toxic, particularly towards women. And he even starts falling down that kind of daily wire rabbit hole. And before you know it, he's arguing with his spouse about all kinds of stupid bullshit. They're arguing about the distribution of chores. They're arguing about trans rights, about gay people, about just all kinds of nonsense, which isn't exactly conducive to a healthy relationship. And she tells him to stop, to basically stop doing this. You're making me uncomfortable. I don't want to talk about these subjects. I don't want to have these constant arguments. But he refuses to relent. And right now they are still together, but... The relationship is definitely past its due date. It certainly seems to be heading out the door, that's for sure. So while, yes, the manosphere helped him transform himself to get a girlfriend, ultimately the toxic ideology is almost certainly going to lead to that relationship dissolving in the near future. So let me tell my second story. My second story about the guy who improved himself, but not through the red pill. Let's call this guy Mike. So Mike used to be, he wasn't really scrawny or anything like that. More taller, a little bit overweight, but he was very kind of just an awkward individual. He liked really nerdy crap, Star Wars Legos and stuff like that. And he'd be the kind of guy to go up to a girl and be like, can, can you come over and see my Star Wars Legos, please? Can we please come over and play with the Legos? And obviously that wasn't the best strategy for him. However, he did end up having a fairly long-term girlfriend, but this relationship ended for him. 
And that was at the point where he decided that he would improve himself. Mike went out there and he went to try and find a bunch of ways that he could improve himself. He started to go on the keto diet and lose a lot of weight. He started studying Brazilian jiu-jitsu and becoming a fierce and strong person. But here's the thing, though. He didn't actually change his nerdy and awkward, quirky ways. If anything, as he began to lose weight and become stronger and more skilled, took ownership of those kind of quirky aspects of his personality. And they were almost elevated to an enduring level because he was just so obviously confident in the person that he was that you couldn't help be swept up in that type of feeling. And now these days, Mike looks almost nothing like he did previously. But the thing is, he's still that really quirky, funny kind of guy who likes all these nerdy little things. He never gave up any of his hobbies or he never abandoned any of the positive personality traits, which made him a unique person. Now, when someone comes over to see his Lego Millennium Falcon, he says, yeah, that's my Lego Millennium Falcon, bitch. Got a problem with it? And these days he's in a very stable and comfortable relationship with a woman who's just as kind of quirky and nerdy as he is. And what happened to Mike is that he transformed himself into a person who was comfortable in their own skin, who was comfortable with the individual that they are and had a strong defining personality that he could also articulate to the people around him. Ultimately, essentially getting all of the benefits and self-improvement and success with women that the red pill supposedly offers without any of that toxic ideology that comes along with it. So what is the ultimate relationship advice that I would give to guys that is outside of the realm of the red pill? I do want to talk about sort of interpersonal and human relationships on this show as time goes on. It's something that I've studied before, and it's something I'm certainly interested in. But just for now, we'll keep it simple. And I think I've got three basic rules that I think can really help people. The first one is be confident and secure in yourself. The manosphere people will say that just be yourself is crappy advice. And that's true. But what is also crappy advice is lie about who you are and become someone you're not just to try and get into a relationship. What is a much better advice is to become like Mike, right? To become comfortable in the person you are, accept all your personality quirks and flaws and own them. And I think the best way to do that is through a system of self-improvement, which again is a natural human ability that we can all do. It just takes time and effort and discipline. The second one is to set healthy boundaries. And you really won't know what healthy boundaries you have, I think, until you're able to achieve that first step and being a person who's comfortable and secure in their own skin. Knowing what you like, knowing what you dislike, knowing what's important to you and how you're defined as a person will help you set those appropriate boundaries so you can have a healthy relationship and not just with your partner, for yourself too. And the last thing I would say is don't force relationships. Don't buy into this nonsense idea of you got to eschew women entirely and never be around them or anything like that. But what you shouldn't do is force a relationship just to validate your own identity. Your self-worth and your 
identity should not come from your relationship status. Before you can be happy with another person, you got to find a way to be happy with yourself. So don't force things. But if you find someone that you're really clicking with and getting along with, don't run away either in, in some paranoid fear that you might be breaking the, you know, the man code or whatever. Just don't think to yourself, I have to be in a relationship to be happy, or I have to not be in a relationship to avoid all these other things that make me unhappy. Ultimately, the trick is really to not force things when it comes to other people. It's very difficult to force other people to do things for you. And ultimately, the only one that you can be assured will change through your hard work and determination is yourself. So in episode four, I'm going to go into some more ways in which you can achieve that sort of self-actualization and to be a stable and secure individual that exists outside of sort of the Judeo-Christian West, Western ethic that aren't necessarily from the left, right? They aren't necessarily leftist prescriptions, but they come from philosophies and ideas and concepts that aren't really practiced here. So while there is a lot more to say on the subject and a lot more that I could say personally, we are going to leave it aside for now because I really want to get into the current events section of the show because there's two big topics that I really want to talk about and I am running out of time to record. All right, guys, time. Let's talk about the anarchy in the UK. And this is something that a lot of people have been messaging and commenting to me about wanting to talk about. And it is quite extraordinary. So basically, I'll give you guys the cliff notes. There's a ton of information out there on this. So I'm going to give you guys the most concise and relevant information here that I think is pertinent. And if you want to know more, there are lots of places you can go. So to start at the beginning, the former Prime Minister Boris Johnson ended up resigning for a number of scandals, the most predominant being these parties and the flaunting of the pandemic restrictions, which he did while he was Prime Minister. He ended up having this big party, which started an investigation, which was kind of like this big bleeding wound that eventually caused his political career to bleed out. And the Conservatives turfed him after it was becoming clearer and clearer that Labour was gaining more and more political momentum. So the British Tories, the Conservative Party, kick out Boris Johnson. They decide that we got to stop the bleeding. This guy is too damaging to the party brand. We got to get rid of him. So they have this leadership election, and this is just kind of a ripple that is a difference between, say, the parliamentary system and the Republican system they have in the United States, which is that basically the party members decide who will be the leader. And if that party in power has the most amount of seats, that leader will become the prime minister and ruler of the country. So basically you have only the conservative members right now, people who have joined the conservative party voting on who's going to be the prime minister, meaning an exceptionally small amount of people voted in this next prime minister to replace Boris Johnson. And that is a woman by the name of Liz Truss. So Liz Truss is a politician who is very fiscally conservative and very pro-Brexit. That's fine because all she really needed to do was essentially stop the bleeding. And she could probably do that just by sitting around and not really doing anything bad. 
that is not what Liz Truss did, though. Liz Truss decided that she was going to swing for the fences. She decided that she was going to bring in this sweeping so-called mini-budget that would change a lot of the tax rules and regulations in the United Kingdom, basically making it more in line with her as a fair libertarian economics. So here's a brief look at some of the items contained in that mini-budget. I'm not going to go through all of them right here. You guys can just look at them if you wish, because the main point is that when she rolled this out, basically the markets went crazy. Essentially, she governed like a politician who had some sort of extraordinary mandate when really she was just elected to stop the bleeding, essentially. And she decided, here's the wound. So yeah, because of this uncertainty and surprise, things the markets don't really like, the British pound crashed, the economy's in turmoil, everybody's freaking out, and Liz Trust goes from, okay, you know, let's see what she can do, to very, very despised and disdained in a short period of time. So in order to stop the bleeding here, Liz decides that she's going to make a series of decisions. The first is she's going to start to roll back some of these more unpopular provisions. However, that doesn't seem to actually do anything. It seems to just be making things worse. So in another attempt to try and stem the damage, she decides she's going to throw her Chancellor of the Exchequer, which sounds like such a badass title. I want to be Chancellor of the Exchequer. But anyway... She takes the Chancellor of the Exchequer, which is the British equivalent of the finance minister, and just takes them and chucks them right under that bus. And then in a very short period of time, they bring in a new Chancellor, and this whole about-face just makes Liz look even worse. So after replacing the Exchequer, this basically seals her fate. After that, this poll comes out, which shows she's got a 9% approval rating. That's single digits. That is the lowest approval rating for a politician I have ever seen in my lifetime. And even worse, among conservative voters, she has only a 12%, or had, I guess, a 12% approval rating. Which, you know, if you're at that point with your own party, it's time to throw in the towel. And that ended up being exactly what happened to Liz Truss so if you haven't seen this gag, it is just phenomenal, right? You, the, the one thing you can't take away from the British people is their sense of humor, particularly when it comes to politics. Just, mwah, oh, chef's kiss. So basically, the Daily Star set up this sort of experiment about a week ago where they could see if this head of iceberg lettuce would outlast Liz Truss's tenure as prime minister. And I'm sure you've heard the glorious news that the lettuce did, in fact, outlast the Prime Minister. So here are some of the stream highlights, them sifting down the lettuce for the first time. So yeah, this is them, like, starting it. There we go. <laughs> Continually dress it up to look more and more like Liz Truss as time goes on. <laughs> Keep giving it more and more. And, you know, it's starting to fade a little bit. Starting to fade. But... Ultimately, the lettuce pulls through, and we can wait here for the final moment, the, the, the final moment of the triumphant lettuce. Okay, this, I believe, is her resigning. This is her giving her speech that she's done. It was a very, very short speech, nothing really 
important or relevant to share. She's just like, I can't fulfill the mandate that I was elected for, but not exactly the mandate you were elected for. You just kind of made that up in your own head. And there goes Liz Truss falling and the lettuce celebrating <laughs> its victory. So honestly, when it comes to politics, I've never seen an implosion as quick or spectacular as this. It is quite something. So I don't know what's going to happen in the UK. But if you were to ask me to make a guess, I think good old Boris Johnson's coming back. I think he's been angling this whole time to weasel his way back into the prime minister's seat. And I think that's what's going to happen. I know a lot of people thought I was pretty out there, especially when basically right after Liz Truss was sworn in, I'm like, yeah, you know, Boris Johnson's angling to get back in there. But I, I think he's coming back. I'm going to make the bold call there. I think Boris Johnson's going to find a way to weasel his way back into the PM seat. And the new boss is going to look a lot like the old boss. Actually, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm actually getting a live report. This is the first live report we're getting on the show about who the next British prime minister is going to be. Is it? Oh, wait. I think it is. Yes, it is. It's Jeb. Sorry. I love the Jeb Bush memes. They bring me nothing but endless joy. In any case... I think that is pretty much the the gist of what has happened in the UK over this last month. Total anarchy. And the anarchy doesn't seem like it's going to stop anytime soon. Again, I do think that somehow Boris Johnson will find a way to, to weasel his way back in. And because realistically, he is the only chance the Conservatives probably have against Labour. I don't think any of these other candidates that they're putting up have a good chance. I don't think Kia Stammer is the greatest labor leader. He definitely comes off as that very stereotypical wooden plastic kind of guy. But that being said, the Tories are in such shambles right now that you can hear longtime conservative voters saying like, you know what, we, these guys, they got to have a period in the wilderness, right? That every so often the party just kind of has to be in the opposition so they can kind of figure themselves out. And the Tories have been in power for a very long time in the United Kingdom. And they need a time outside of power, like I said, to really do some self-examination. So with that, I want to move to the next and last current event topic, which is going to be the drone strikes in Kiev. This happened about a week ago, and it has caused a lot of discussion in the military analyst circles who have been examining this conflict because they used a new weapon in the face of 21st century warfare, something that we really hadn't seen deployed like this before. And this is the use of the kamikaze drones, essentially drones, which fly into a target and explode, killing themselves. The technical term is loitering ammunition. You know, great. I just like to call them drones, essentially. Some people don't like it when I just call them drones. You know, they're, they're just for simplicity. Okay. So let's check out some footage. This is from the CBC of these drone strikes before we kind of talk about the implications and how they will change the face of the battlefield and the course of the conflict in this war. So you can see that the we've got some Go some GoPro footage of police. We've got some interior footage of houses and apartments being hit by these drones. You know, it's a terrifying tactic. And you can see even the police are shooting up at them. And one of the things about these particular drones is that, yes, they are unsophisticated, they are slow, and they are vulnerable, vulnerable to the point where you can take small arms and shoot up at them and potentially take them out. 
but that's okay because these drones aren't meant to be well protected. They're meant to crash into their target and destroy it. And what makes these things so potentially devastating is how cheap they are to build and how easy they are to deploy and strike their targets. So much has been made about the small cost of these drones. According to estimates, they cost about 20,000 US dollars a piece, which does sound like a substantial amount of money. You know, I couldn't really go out and buy one of these drones if I wanted to, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about governmental scale and potentially warfare based on attrition. And in that kind of warfare, these drones are going to be highly valuable. So let me show you what I mean. We are looking at a caliber cruise missile right here. This is Russia's domestically produced cruise missile. And if we can see at the unit cost here, this is the cost that it cost the Russians, which is just under a million US dollars. I've seen this figure bandied around the 6.5 million dollars, but that is what they charge on export, which makes it seem that exporting missiles is a good business to be in. It's pretty pretty sizable markup there. So yeah, these missiles are fairly expensive to produce, but they do carry a pretty sizable explosive payload at 400 between 4 and 500 kilograms. But one of the things you have to remember, right, is this is a missile, the whole thing isn't crashing into its target. It's just the payload. While in comparison to our Iranian drones here, these things they are impacting with the explosive head plus the body of the drone. So you're gonna get a little bit more explosive force. From what I've been reading, it's probably on the equivalent of taking five to six of these Shahid drones to make an equivalent explosive power to a caliber missile. So while these drones are much slower than missiles and much easier to shoot down, that's not the way they attack. They attack in swarms. So these things can only go about 185 kilometers an hour. That's not very much. And they also make a very distinctive loud noise when they're approaching. They call them moped missiles or lawnmower missiles. But when you launch upwards of 80 of these drones in a swarm and they're all coming at you, you can't get them all. And according to the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense, they have been able to usually get about 55% of these attacking drones. So still 45% are getting through and striking their target. And I just want to say, I think there's a reason why these drones here have captured the imagination and terror of a lot of people, because this is terrifying 21st century warfare development. The idea of flying suicide robots that, you know, they loiter around up in the sky waiting for the exact point where they all just swarm down and blow up everything around you. That's terrifying. It's like something from a sci-fi movie. So to kind of illustrate my point a little bit further, let's do some math. We're going to do some hardcore math right now. So let's say we're just going to use even numbers. We've got a million dollars per missile here divided by 20,000 for a drone. And that means that for every caliber missile, the Russians can afford 50 of these drones. So let's say Russia launches an attack of, we're just gonna use even numbers of 50 drones, and the Ukrainians are able to, on average, take out that 55% of the drones. We want the 45% because this is the amount of drones that will get through. 45% of the drones will get through. 
So what that gives us is 22.5. So between 23 and 22 drones will make it through the defenses and strike their targets. So once again, let's also then take that and divide it by five, which is the equivalent sort of number of drones to equal the explosive power of a caliber missile. And you get 4.5 times the explosive and destructive capability getting through for the same cost as one caliber missile. And then on top of that, these drones have another advantage over missiles, which is that they can A, take pictures and send data back to the home base, and B, these can decide not to attack, right? Where, you know, if it's a missile, as soon as it said it, forget it. As soon as you hit the button, it's gone. Whereas these drones, they can sit in the air and they can kind of hover around. And then if weather conditions aren't right or something changes, you can just call them back. They call, go right back to the base and then you can wait for the next time to use them and you can find another opportunity to strike. You can set these guys up and then if things don't work out, you can bring them down and try again. And another ripple here is that in order to operate these drones, you're probably going to have to have Iranians on the ground in Russia in order to maintain them and tell them how to use them. And it looks like we're getting confirmation out now that yes, indeed, there are Iranians on the ground in Russia and that they are actively participating, at least, you know, they're directly engaged on the ground, as John Kirby says here, which is definitely going to have political ramifications. I mean, I don't think it's going to be escalating to the point where the United States declares war on Iran or anything like that. But it certainly is showing that Russia is looking to outside sources for some support and that there are people that are willing to give them that support. So anyway, while I've been pretty big on these drones, I don't want to overstate their value because I personally do not think that this is a game changer in the war. I do think that eventually Ukrainians will adapt their tactics to the point where they can get that kill rate higher and higher and higher to the point where these drones can become largely ineffective but in the meantime they are a very terrifying force and something that i am watching to see how they're going to be used in the future of warfare you know a shout out to a discord member corpse god who brought up a good point about this i think is essentially that they're probably going to be end up being like stuka dive bombers a source of terror and a source of destruction but not necessarily a tool which changes things on the ground tactically to Russia's advantage. So I've seen a lot of people in the West talk about how that this indicates serious problems for the Russians. I'm not as convinced about that. It definitely shows that they're running out of precision missiles, but they are using these as a pretty effective stopgap. What's really interesting about these drones is that it... The, the reaction to them has really run the gambit. Traditional media sources that are very pro-Ukraine, you're seeing people basically saying that this is a sign of desperation. They're bargain bin drones. It shows serious problems with the Russian military campaign. Of course, there's some truth to that, but I think they're taking it way too far. And of course, if you look at some pro-Russian news sources on, there's definitely lots of pro-Russian YouTubers out there, as well as news sources outside of America and Western Europe, places in India, Singapore, China, those places have a different interpretation of the conflict. And for them, they're basically singing this drone's praise like, it's over for Ukraine, the drones are coming, they're going to just fly over everything, destroy everything, they may as well surrender now. 
To me, obviously, the truth is somewhere in the middle. And honestly, we probably don't know how effective these are going to be in the long run because it is still a new tool being used in warfare. So we're going to have to see how it actually pans out before we can make any definitive statements. All right, guys, so I'm going to end the show with a great suggestion from a viewer, which is to end the show on a story or a subject that's more uplifting and not necessarily like one of those like man saves kitten from trees type of stories. I'm into futurism and fascinating technology and robotics and also things like agriculture, like the future of agriculture and growing food and energy and all kinds of interesting things that are coming out in our time. And that's probably more what these stories are going to end on. And today I've got one of the most interesting stories that I read in a little while, which is that scientists have been able to teach live brain cells in a Petri dish to play Pong, which is just, it sounds so science fiction-y. It's amazing. And you can kind of see what you're seeing in the side here is a computer representation essentially of all the neurons linking together and sending information between each other and then learning how to play Pong on the side. So let's go through some of the details here so we can get a better understanding of exactly what is going on. So human and mouse neurons living in a dish learned to play the video game Pong. Scientists reported the achievement on October 12th in the journal A Neuron. The fascinating experiments are evident that even brain cells in a dish can exhibit inherent intelligence, modifying their behavior over time. From worms to flies to humans, neurons are the starting block for generalized intelligence, says the first author, Brett Kagan. So the question was, can we interact with neurons to harness that inherent intelligence? Kagan is the chief scientist at the Chlorical Labs in Melbourne, Australia. First, the scientists connected neurons to a computer in such a way that the neurons received feedback on whether their in-game paddle was hitting the ball. Using the electric probes that recorded the spikes on the grid, the researchers were able to monitor the neurons' activity and responses to this feedback. The more a neuron moved its paddle and hit the ball, the stronger the spikes became. When the neurons missed, their playstyle was critiqued by a software program created by Cortical Labs. This demonstrated that the neurons could adapt their activity in real time to a changing environment in a goal-oriented way. We chose Pong due to its simplicity and familiarity, but also as one of the first games used in machine learning, so we wanted to recognize that, said Kagan, who worked with collaborators from 10 other institutions on the product. An unpredictable stimulus was applied to the cells, and the system as a whole would recognize activity to better play the game and minimize a random response, he says. You can think just by playing the game and hitting the ball and getting a predictable simulation, it's inherently creating more predictable environments. So that's pretty interesting. The theory behind its learning is rooted in the free energy principle. Simply put, the brain adapts to its environment by either changing its worldview or its actions to better fit the world around it. Pong wasn't the only game that researchers tested. You know, when the Google Chrome browser crashes and you get the dinosaur that you can make jump over obstacles? I've never had that. Has anybody else had that? I've never had that happen to me. We've done that and we've seen nice preliminary results. 
but we still have more work to do in building new environments for custom projects, says Kagan. Future directions of this work have had potential in disease modeling, drug discoveries, and expanding the current understanding of how the brain works and how intelligence arises. This is the start of a new frontier in understanding intelligence, says Kagan. It touches the fundamental aspects of not only what it means to be human, but of what it means to be alive and intelligent at all, to process information and be sentient in an ever-changing and dynamic world. Wow. So we'll just end off on this little video here. This is the brain cells of the dish learning to play Pong. And as you can see, it's pretty shaky. And over time, it's kind of figuring it out, figuring out what it needs to do. And you can see that it gets better and better as time goes on at kind of maintaining the paddle and figuring out where it needs to go. So this to me is just unbelievably fascinating, unbelievably interesting that we are starting to get to the point where we can put brain cells in dish and they can learn to play a video game. Like they talked about in the article, this can have huge implications and things to get learning how diseases run their course. They have huge implications in gaming and artificial intelligence. And I just can't wait to see where this kind of stuff goes. It gives me hope. I've always hoped that I can kind of maintain my consciousness in a robot or a vessel or something like that and be able to move on into a new body. This gives me hope that we have possibility for that in our conceivable future. And that's the end of our show. A very abrupt ending, but I've gone on for quite some time. And to be fair, it could have gone on longer, but we have to end the show at some point. So this is kind of a interesting episode where we got to talk about some of the societal concepts that are permeating into our brains and relationships. But the next episode is going to be focused more on how you can achieve enlightenment, self-actualization with different methods that maybe you aren't familiar with, that you haven't heard about or are familiar with, but haven't really been able to guide yourself to making these philosophies useful. So that's what we're going to be doing next week. We're going to be diving into some more spiritual and philosophical subjects, touching on things like ethics and morality, and not just that, but what it means to be a self-actualized human being. And I always, I really like the term self-actualization. I come from a psychology background. When I talk about that, it's essentially reaching the pinnacle of your potential as a human being. So anyway, until that time, I want to thank you guys for watching. This has been DeComrade. I hope you enjoyed the show. And until next time, you guys take care.